that I find myself in is called Daddy Daycare. Uh-huh. Amen. Um, and what that means is that uh, Daddy drops off at daycare and Daddy picks up from daycare. This is what Daddy Daycare means for me. And uh, I'm actually thrilled and, and pumped because... Uh, in just a few months, we have a second one coming into the fold. So that's pretty exciting. And uh, this time, it's a boy. So, um, oh, yes. Yes, let's go. Thank you, God. Um, I'm, already, I'm already in petition and in prayer for this, uh, this little one, this little boy that has to deal with me as their dad. So, um, but... Part of daddy daycare uh, for me, or, or picking up, dropping off at, at daycare, uh, that's what I like to call it. Um, one of the things that I have come to love is, is picking up my little girl from daycare. It is an amazing experience. I, I pull up, and, and I go in, and I go down to her classroom, and usually she's playing or doing something to where she can't see me at all, but I can see her. And then all of a sudden, I, I, just, I just start smiling and looking at her. And, and then she looks up at me. And we make eye contact. And when we make eye contact, her face, like, gives off as much energy as it possibly can. And she smiles. And her eyes get big. And she starts clapping her hands. And she starts, like, waddling forward to see me and, and, and reaches for me. And I have come to love this moment to the point now where Jordan and I sometimes fight over who's going to go pick her up because it does something for us in our day. Parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That, that, that moment where they look at you and they smile and they giggle and there's a sparkle in their eye and they see you giggling and laughing and smiling at them. And I have come to realize that that is the picture of joy. That is the quintessential picture of joy. Two faces looking at each other. One smile producing another smile. I have spent my entire life in the church. I've been to seminary. Uh, and, and have read and studied, and I have heard very little on a theology of joy. Very little in regards to joy. And its necessity in our relationship or our intimacy or abiding or living at home with God or with our discipleship to Jesus. It's very rarely brought up or our relationship with others and the role of joy in our connection to one another. It just hasn't gotten much time and attention. What has gotten quite a bit of attention and has a bit more of a focus than joy is love. 
Love theologically has gotten quite a bit of attention from scholars and theologians for the last few hundred years. And I can honestly say most of our secular world around us has a distorted view of love, where it is primarily about desire or attraction, rather than, as our good friend Dallas Willard says, willing the good of another. Or, as Adrian von Kamm says, love is, first of all, a matter of willing. Love is not merely an emotion, but it is to will the good of another. And our distorted view has positioned love primarily as an attraction or a a desire that we have inside of us. Jesus himself gives a definition a few verses later from the chunk that we just read in John 15, where he defines love essentially as laying down one's life for a friend. Or to translate it, I think it could also read to give of oneself to another, to give all of oneself to another. Another word for this is the word benevolence. Benevolence. Or the word goodwill. Goodwill. So every time you are thrift shopping at the goodwill, I want you to walk in and say to yourself, that's what love means. That's what love is. But I promise love doesn't smell like that. I promise it doesn't. I prom- if it does, we're in trouble. Some of us don't want to be with the Father because he smells like the goodwill, right? Um, but that is the essence of love. It's not mere attraction or desire or eroticism. It is actually to will the good of another. It's benevolence. It's extending yourself to someone else. But though we have a distorted view of love, and we could spend a lot of time talking about love, It seems that we in our modern era have a weak view of joy. Distorted view of love, but a weak view of joy. And love and joy always go hand in hand. In some regard, it could be said that they are actually two sides of the same coin. In fact... I would argue this morning that love isn't merely just extending the good of another, but it is actually extending joy to another. Because if love is the defining essence or nature of Christ and the defining fruit of the Spirit produced through us based on Galatians 5, then the very first characteristic, as we see in Galatians 5, in the fruit of the Spirit, is what? Joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Some scholars seem to believe that what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to speak to a a Greek audience, a Gentile audience, about the Hebrew idea of hesed. Hesed. The word in the New Testament is translated as agape, but it doesn't paint the whole picture of hesed or loving kindness. So Paul's like, I can't just give agape. I've got to give some qualifiers for agape if we're going to connect it to hesed. 
And the first quality or characteristic of hesed translated into the New Testament, it seems to me, is joy. It's joy. Love shows itself, but joy sees. Love acts, but joy reveals. Love extends itself, but joy connects. This is key. Love extends, but joy connects. Love without connection is not joy. But love with connection is joy. Now, both love and joy are presented in John 15 as we've been walking through this idea of abiding and this metaphor that Jesus presents his disciples on the last night before his crucifixion. These two are presented as the primary fruit of abiding in the vine. When you read that section, the only two that we see replicated by Paul when we see the fruit of the Spirit are love and joy. This is the primary fruit for us. Last week, we talked about the importance of bearing fruit in connection to the vine, how that works. But for living with God, the primary fruit of the Spirit in our life and living and abiding with Him is love and joy. But when we read these 17 verses or so in this chunk, love tends to drown out joy. In fact, joy seems to have been ultimately forgotten or it's just not as important. And for most of us, when we think about joy, it doesn't seem as important as love. Joy is a bit like a maraschino cherry on top of a sundae. It's nice. It's an added bonus, but don't count on it. Don't count on it. Like, you don't need it. It's not that important. It's just there for good measure, for good looks. But when we see this passage of Scripture, it feels like that it isn't that important. Because love appears nine times as a word, but joy appears only twice. Twice in this section. So it seems as though it's not that important. But what if I told you all this morning that joy is actually at the center of love? That joy is at the very core of love? And that joy is actually what is produced in our life first in connection to the vine? Abiding in love or remaining in love manifests joy. Verse 11 in John 15 has been the one verse I have been marinating in and and meditating on and thinking about all week as I have prepared for this teaching. And it's a verse I've been thinking about for the last few months in connection to abiding and our discipleship to Jesus and our formation. And it reads this. I'm going to read it again for us. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Notice the word so that, or this could be considered a conjunction, cause and effect. So here's what this means in this one verse. 
centered in this larger chunk in John 15, let alone 13 to 17, the whole upper room discourse. And Jesus is saying, I have told you these things, all of them, so that, here's what this means, that the very point and purpose of Jesus's words in this metaphor, and I would argue the entire upper room discourse, is that the disciples or Jesus's apprentices or students would be full of the joy of Christ in them. The entire point of what he is sharing is so that they would be, and you and I would be full of not our own joy, but his joy. Because he says in verse 11, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with not just joy, but my joy. My joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. He is wanting to offer them as they abide or attach themselves to him, his own joy as a grace or as a gift. Here is my joy. When you abide in me, you will experience fullness of my joy. In essence, he is saying that the reason I love you is so that when you are connected to me, you will be nourished by my joy-producing love. Love-producing joy. So if love is the foundation of the home, so to speak, that we are abiding in, then it is joy that is the life produced in the home. Love is the foundation, but it is joy that represents the life of the home. The consequential disposition of abiding in God's love is meant to be joy. Joy. The primary disposition of the person who is abiding in the vine is to be joy. And Jesus doesn't want to just give some joy but that we be utterly filled to the point of overflowing. And overflow tends to touch whatever it is around. That is the very idea of overflow. It is coming out of and touching something else. James K. A. Smith says that joy has an attractional power. Other people should catch your joy. It's the nature of it. Joy is caught It spills over. And Jesus is saying that he wants us to be filled with his joy to the point of it overflowing and touching those around us. It is caught. It has an attractional power. Joy is a gift for us and a fruit for others. It is a unique gift for us as well as a fruit for others to experience and taste. So when you are receiving the love of Jesus and joy is being produced in you, then the fruit that is meant to come out of the vine is joy. He goes on in John 17, at the end of the Upper Room Discourse, in what's called the High Priestly Prayer. John 17, verse 13. This is 
what Jesus has to say. Very similar language. He says, I have told them many things while I was with them in this world. So they would be filled with my joy. Not only has he told the disciples this, but now he's going to the Father and praying and petitioning that they would experience the fullness of joy. This is his petition to the Father that you and I would experience fullness of joy. I told you many things, Jesus has said, and he told many things. John later says that if I were to write down everything Jesus said and did, there would not be a book that could contain it. And here, Jesus says, I've told you a lot of things. I've told them so many things, but it is so that they would experience my joy. There is no other vine, friends, no other attachment that we can have as human beings that can produce the kind of joy that comes from the true vine. Now, you might want to disagree with that conclusion, but I would look at you and say, test the theory. Test the theory. One of the great challenges of the modern West in the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of pleasure is it has no antidote for suffering because the primary vision for living is, is about pleasure or it's just survival of the fittest. So what does that mean? That the vision that the world provides for us, hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure, has no antidote for human suffering. But the Christian vision does. And that is joy. Psalm 1611 says, You will make known to me the way of life. In your presence is fullness of what? Joy. Fullness. Not just some, not just a little, but fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Did you know, this is fascinating, did you know that our brains have what is referred to as a joy center? A joy center. It is in the right prefrontal cortex of our brain, and it's actually unformed at birth, But over time, this portion of our brain grows and expands. In fact, though a majority of brain development ends during childhood, the joy center of the brain is the only part of the brain that expands and contracts over time. The joy center of your brain actually can grow or it can diminish over time. It contracts or it expands. Joy quite literally grows in our brain. Sounds like fruit, does it not? Joy quite literally grows and develops in our brain. Now, the joy part of the brain is also in the attachment side of the brain or the relational side of the brain. So what does that mean for us? That joy grows or diminishes through relational attachment. Joy either expands or contracts on the basis of relational attachments that we have. When we were born as little babies, 
our first attachment that we make is to the one who nourishes us and provides us food and nutrients. That's our first attachment. We attach to the one who feeds us. Our brain attaches to what gives us life or food. Again, we see the connection to John 15 and the idea of abiding and nourishment to the branches. So we can say that the original sin of humanity was letting the wrong person feed us. We attach first to the one that provides us life, to the one who nourishes us. Our second attachment happens a few months in, and it is when we attach ourselves to the face of one who we sense is glad to see us. This triggers the joy side of the brain. A connection is made with a face. A little baby just a few months old can see a person behind a face and determine if they are glad to see them or not. This is very interesting. They can see a motivation behind a face. Smile says it all for a little baby, for a little newborn. Smile says it all for us. When Selah smiles at me, it makes me smile because she's glad to see me. There is joy in her when she sees me. Joy is only produced in relational connection. Joy is produced no other place. No other place. Joy is only produced by attachment to another. So you don't just eat chocolate and say that that gave you a sense of joy. Maybe happiness, but not joy. Because joy, by default, in our brains, is relational. It's relational. The uh, clinical psychologist Jim Wilder says, from the human brain perspective, joy is more of a dynamic relational experience. Joy is a glad-to-be-together state, amplified between two minds that are glad to be together at that moment. Real joy, here we go, real joy is the sparkle in someone's eye when they see us that makes their face light up, and I like it. That is joy. When someone looks at you, and there's a sparkle in their eye, and they're glad to see you, and you like it, that's joy. The very definition of joy, I like this. This is from Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks. The definition of joy is, I want to be with you. You want to know what joy is? I want to be with you. I want to be here right now. I want you to keep looking at me. And I want to look at you. Many of us haven't been seen in a really long time. Some of us avoid eye contact because of what people might see. So what do we do often? We trade a person's face for an artificial one. It's called a screen. It always looks back at you, but it never responds. It can never produce what human eyes can produce when they look at you. 
It's artificial. If I had the chance to sit down with every single one of you and sit in a chair six feet apart and just look at you in your eyes for 10 minutes, I'd be curious to know what would happen inside of you. There was an artist a few years ago named Marina Abramovich, and she did a um, very unique installation at the Modern Museum of Art in New York City where she sat in a chair, and there was another chair about six or eight feet in front of her, and it was open for other people to come and sit and just look at her. And she would sit there with no emotion and just look into their eyes. This happened, this happened for weeks, this installation. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people came through the Modern Museum of Art and sat in this chair. And guess what happened to people as they sat and looked at this stranger in the eyes? And she looked at them. They began to weep. They began to cry. And this is with no emotion. She's just looking at them. Kurt Thompson, who's a psychiatrist, says that we are born in this world looking for someone to look at us. You want to be seen. But the struggle is that often we want to manufacture a presentation of ourselves so that other people will see us. And it never satisfies. This is why when we don't have enough likes on Instagram posts, we take it down. It wasn't seen enough. This is why filters became a thing. I want to present myself in such a way where other people affirm me. Why? Because your identity, your sense of self, requires someone else to see you. But the beauty of the Father, as we'll see in a moment, is that you don't have to perform or create an identity to show the world. He sees you as you are and has seen you from the beginning of time. Fullness of joy is only produced when we attach ourselves to Christ Jesus or when we abide. When the joyful love of the Father is extended to us, it is meant to produce the same in us, that same sort of joy. Now, this is where we must distinguish joy from happiness. They are not the same. Joy can produce and does produce happiness, but it sustains beyond happiness. Happiness can be generated through a self-created experience. Joy cannot. Joy can't be manufactured. Happiness can be manufactured. But it comes and goes. It is passive. Joy requires another person. Joy is independent of circumstances. Happiness requires external circumstances. That's why the pursuit of happiness is actually a self-defeating prophecy. It's a byproduct of the pursuit of something else. Happiness comes from other things or experiences. But joy is independent of circumstances. Joy requires another person by default. Joy is often referred to as a supra-emotion where it can go on top of other emotions and bind them together. Joy connects. In other words, 
You can have a not happy experience and still be full of joy. Or you can feel a sense of anger and still choose to rejoice. The Archbishop Desmond Tutu says this about joy. Discovering joy does not save us from the inevitability of hardship and heartbreak. In fact, we may cry more easily, but we, we will laugh more easily too. Perhaps we are just more alive. Yet as we discover more joy, we can face suffering in a way that ennobles rather than embitters. We have hardship without becoming hard. We have heartbreaks without being broken. This is the power of joy in your anger, in your bitterness. In your happiness, you are able to still rejoice. Joy combines with our emotions to keep us connected in distress. To keep us connected in distress. The antithesis of, of joy, some say, is hopelessness. Because joy is what we feel when we have hope in something and it comes to pass. This is why when Jesus comes on the scene as the incarnate one, the angels are like, rejoice! I have bring good news with great joy. This is what I've come to bring to you. It's going to cause all kinds of rejoicing. Jim Wilder goes on to say that our brains desire joy more than any other thing. Any other thing. Studies have shown that 90% of our joy and happiness, actually, is internal. Meaning spiritual formation is crucial. Spiritual formation is crucial. Even more studies indicate, and I found this to be interesting, that religious people, and in particular Christians, tend to be much happier and more joyful than those who aren't. Time Magazine did an article on this study and of course, there's all sides to a study. I understand that, but I found this to be interesting. Those with a spiritual practice, it said, or who follow religious beliefs tend to be happier than those who don't. Study after study has found that religious people tend to be less depressed and less anxious than non-believers, better able to hand the vicissitudes of life than non-believers. And this is just referring to happiness, but joy goes much deeper. Joy, quite literally, is active in us. Happiness, as I've said, is passive. Joy can perpetuate itself, as we've noted with our brain. You can become more and more joyful over time. It gets harder and harder as you get older. That's why we often say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But joy perpetuates itself. Dallas Willard says that joy is a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. Constant sense of well-being. You can't curate happiness, but you can curate a sense of joy. It is possible. Now, you might wonder how that is possible. And it's called gratitude. Gratitude. This is how... Paul the Apostle in Philippians can be in jail, but still be joyful. This letter to the Philippians could often, or could be called the joy letter, because he references the idea of rejoicing and joy all throughout it, while he is in prison. And it begins with this, or it begins with this. 
I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with what? Joy. It begins with thanksgiving. It begins with gratitude. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Or how about in 1 Thessalonians? Chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Or pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How do you rejoice always? Give thanks in all circumstances. This is almost a formula for the production of joy in our life. Gratitude and giving thanks. This is literally God's desire and will for you. So what is God's will? That that his joy be produced in you and I by thanksgiving. This is what the text says. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A 2015 article in the popular journal Scientific American reported that out of 24 strengths, including such powerhouses as love, hope, kindness, and creativity, the single best predictor of good relationships and emotional well-being was gratitude. Why? Because it produces joy. When we talk about choosing joy, which it's a little more complex than that, But when we talk about choosing joy, what we are really talking about is choosing gratitude. Choosing to be thankful. That is how joy expands and grows in our physical brain. Robert Emmons, who has probably done the most work around a psychology of gratitude, he's a professor at UC Davis in California, he says, to have joy, our eyes must be wide open in gratitude. Gratitude is the gateway to joy. And often we talk about um, thanking God for who he is. I just want to thank God for who you are. And I love this notion, but it's a bit elusive. The ancient Jewish people always thanked God for what he had done. We thank him for who he is. Why? Because what he has done. This is why we thank him. This is why in the ancient world there were feasts and festivals and celebration to thank God for what he had done. Communal gratitude is called celebration. This is why we need to eat together. This is why we need to celebrate. This is why we need to come together and have opportunities to just thank God for who he is and for what he has done. We thank God for what he has done. Now listen, a person with low gratitude will be low in joy. So for you this morning, if it's hard for you to think of things to be thankful for, my guess is that you're low in joy right now. The joy is a bit depleted. But as you begin to thank God for what he has done, in your life, you will begin to experience, by default, an increase in joy. So my question for you today, to our Emmaus family, is this question. Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy God? 
Not do you love him? Do you enjoy him? Do you enjoy being here with this community? In order for us to love Jesus and to love his community, to be attached to him and to each other, we must enjoy him and one another. And the only way that we are able to enjoy another is if we know the other enjoys us. And a person enjoys you when their face, quote-unquote, lights up. That is evidence of joy. All through the scriptures and the story of God, there is this depiction of the face of God shining. Famous passage in the book of Numbers says this, and this is an ancient blessing of the Hebrew people. The Lord bless you and keep you The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Joy is meant to, love produces joy, joy then produces peace. So we could say that the absence of joy maybe isn't hopelessness, but it's actually anxiety. It's anxiousness about the future and trust, mistrust. I don't trust that you enjoy me being here. I don't trust that you enjoy my presence. I'm a bit anxious because I don't know if you are being authentic in your joy towards me. But do you know that the NLT says in connection to this verse, it doesn't say the Lord make his face shine on you. Here's what it says. May the Lord smile on you. May the Lord smile on you. Ultimate joy is produced by being seen by the Father and called a beloved son or daughter. If joy is all about face-to-face connection, and it is, Then another question I have for you today is what kind of face does the father make when he looks at you? What is the countenance of the face of the father when he looks at you? Is he upset? Is he disappointed? Is he stoic? Is he cold? Is he hard? Is he angry? Is he welcoming? Is he inviting? Now keep in mind, the Father and his countenance towards you is always rooted in love because he is the essence of love. So he smiles at you, but he also grieves. The Holy Spirit we read actually grieves because a loving Father wants what's best for their child. What is the face of God when he looks at you? 
Barbara Peacock says this, many of us do not fully experience the joy of life simply because we do not know the immense love that God has for us. I believe this to be true. Some of you, to be quite honest, you don't even believe that the Father loves you. And some of us, maybe we know he loves us. We're like, okay, I get that. He sent his son, so he displayed his love. He extended goodwill. But you don't trust he enjoys you. Paul even prays in Romans 15, 13. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. But some of us this morning, we don't trust that the Father enjoys us. And because of that, we don't enjoy him. But I'm praying for a miracle today. I'm praying that you would trust and receive the gift of faith today in believing that he enjoys you, that he is glad to be with you, that he wants to be with you, that he delights in your presence, that his eye sparkles when he sees you. I don't want you just to trust that he loves you today. That's important but I want you to trust that he enjoys you. And I want us to be able to give thanks to God because if you did not know, he is the most joyful person the world has ever and can ever know. And he wants you and I to experience the fullness of his joy. He doesn't want to produce anxiety in you. He wants to give you rest. He recognizes, as we've said before, that your heart's restless until it finds its rest in him. Seeking all these other ways to produce lasting joy that can't. He just sits and he looks at us. He enjoys you. And he wants to be with you. And it breaks his heart because he wants to be with you when you neglect his presence. Because he wants so desperately for you to be glad to see him. For you to enjoy him. This is why he sent his son. This is why God became flesh, extending love. Because he wants to reconcile two parties so that we might could enjoy each other once again. So I want us as a people to be ones who enjoy God, who are glad to be with God because he's glad to be with us. A people who enjoy being with one another, rejoicing in his goodness in the midst of affliction, rejoicing in his favor in the midst of sorrow, rejoicing in his welcome in the midst of loneliness, rejoicing in his righteousness in the midst of injustice. Rejoicing in his correction in the midst of feeling shame. He wants to be with you. And there are so many things and distractions in your life that are diverting even your ability to enjoy God. C.S. Lewis talks about a person 
who essentially has a, a minimal view of desire and that we've come to love just playing in a pigsty. We've come to fall in love with the mud and the dirt. And God's like, God has so much more for you than this. He wants you to enjoy him and he wants to enjoy you and he does. I want all of us to be able to sing and to declare as a people that I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart and down in my heart to stay. That is my prayer. That's my prayer for myself. Because I struggle sometimes to enjoy God. I struggle to believe that God enjoys me. That if I'm not performing, that I can't be with Him. But I want to enjoy His presence. I want to see the sparkle in His eye that will last all eternity. I want to know that when He looks at me, it's the same way I look at my little girl when I pick her up. And I want that for you. I want you to be seen today. Some of you are lost. You're wandering in darkness. And my call for you today is just to stop. In the midst of the chaos and the challenging moment of our life, where we struggle to trust, and it's hard, just stop and rest in the goodness of God and just say, you do want to be with me. You do want to know me. One of the ancient ways the church produces joy in each other is just by singing to one another. Paul calls us in Ephesians to sing to one another in Psalms.